As you take your seats, you can find your Bibles and open them up to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we're going to be focusing on verses 11 and 12 there. Well, this is the time of year when I often look at my wife and I look her in the eyes and I say, Amber, take a look at the old miles, because tomorrow there's going to be a new miles, and this is going to be the old man. And then the next year comes, and around the same time, I look at my wife, and I look her in her eyes, and I say, Amber, take a look at the old miles, because tomorrow there's going to be a new miles. This is the time of year that many of us are making resolutions, and maybe as we even think about that word, resolution, for us, many of us, many, that word reveals to us how far short we fall of priorities we make. Isn't that the human condition? We set priorities, and so often we can fail to live by them. Let me just give you some really sobering statistics here. 25% of New Year's resolutions made, 25% of people who make New Year's resolutions will fail them within a week. That should be sobering for those of you who made New Year's resolutions. Okay, 60% will have completely forgotten about them within six months. The average person will make the same resolution 10 years in a row before accomplishing that thing if they don't just forget about it completely. These are sobering statistics, but they reveal a bigger problem for us. What if we are actually that small percent that accomplish some resolutions that can live by some priorities that we set in our life, but we get to the end of our life and we look at all these things that we've accomplished, we look at all these goals that we've set and done, and we realize that we wasted our time. Maybe we get to the end of our life. And we look back on these promotions we got. We look back on this money we made. We look back on where our family is. We look back on these materials we have. And we look at it and we say, all that effort I put in, all the priorities I set and accomplished were useless to me now. What if our priorities aren't right? As we think about this, we can be prone to just abandon resolutions altogether. To say, I'm not going to worry about resolve. I'm just going to live my life the way that the wind blows. Wherever I go, however I need to live that day, I'm just going to do it. Should we just abandon resolutions? And the Bible's answer is a clear no. In fact, the Bible shows us one motivation that's strong enough to give power and clarity to our priorities and to give power and clarity to our resolutions, and it's this, our future reality. This morning, I want you to see two of our present priorities that are fueled by one future reality. And so let's read 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. This is Paul praying, and he writes this, To this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The first priority I want you to see that we need to have when our faith is fueled by our future reality is this. Our priority is to resolve to display his power through our faithfulness. When we recognize our future reality in Christ, I'm resolved to display his power through my faithfulness. Now, what we're reading here is Paul's, one of Paul's prayers for the church of Thessalonica. And we know that because in verse 11, he says, To this end, we always pray for you. 
Now, whenever you read those words to this end, what you need to do is take a step back and look at the context of that prayer. And as we do that, we find that Paul is encouraging a church that is completely beat down for living their faith. They're pursuing the things of Jesus Christ. They have their minds set on the right and proper priorities, but they are being persecuted because of it. And they're feeling affliction because of it. And they're struggling because of it. And in the face of all these challenges, Paul wants to encourage them. And he does that in verse 7. Look what he says in chapter 1 of verse, in verse 7. He said, God considers it just to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. He looks at the church and he says, listen, in light of your present circumstance, look at the future reality. The Lord is coming back. And in that day, your reality is that you will be granted relief. Jesus is coming back. Take comfort, church. In verse 10, he continues to talk about the coming of the Lord Jesus. He says, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. He says, take hope, church. There is future hope for you in Jesus Christ. He is returning. Now, as we read Paul's prayer what we find is that his prayer makes his priority for the church public. That's what prayer does. It makes our priority public. And so as we read Paul's prayer, what we're doing is we're looking at the priority Paul had for that church. Paul was in a unique, a unique circumstance as a pastor because he would go to a church and sometimes he would leave that church after weeks or after months and he might never return to that church again. And so he was in a unique circumstance because he was called to shepherd this church that he was not with. And one of the ways that he made sure that God was working in that church was by praying. He prayed. See, Paul had this belief that we need to have that prayer is just us saying, God, I need you to do this. God, I need you to work this way. God, I I need you to make this priority happen in my life. And so Paul's praying for the church, and he's saying, God, I need you to work in this church this way. And so as we read this prayer, we recognize Paul's priority, how he's calling to live in the present in light of their future reality. Look at the content of his prayer. As verse 11 goes on, it says this, that our God may make you worthy of his calling. Paul's prayer for the church is that God would make them worthy of his calling. As we read this language, we need to ask a question. Does God really need to make them worthy? At this point, in your theological brains, there should be a red light dinging. Does does God need to make us worthy? Aren't we already worthy in Jesus Christ? Why is Paul praying for this church to be made worthy? And when we think about the question, it's really got a twofold answer. In, in the terms of justification, of, the answer is, of course, yes, we are worthy. Take a moment for your heart to renew your worship over this truth. You know that in terms of justification, if you are in Christ, if you've placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you stand before a holy judge with a perfect law, and you stand before him completely worthy. Not because you're worthy, not because you possess any righteousness of your own, because you're wearing the robes of the only one who could stand before that law, of the only one who could bear that law, of the only one who could pay the penalty for that law. You stand in the position of Jesus Christ. You stand before the king as a worthy child. 
Do you know that? In that sense, you are completely worthy before God. In terms of our justification, it's a clear no, we are worthy. But in sanctification, when we consider our worthiness, the answer is a resounding yes, of course we need to be made worthy. There's a great gap between who we are in our holiness and in our worthiness and who God calls us to be in our position in Jesus Christ. When we consider our faithfulness to God, when we consider our holiness, when we consider our obedience, each of us by experience know that there is this wide, wide, I cannot emphasize enough how wide that gap is between who we are and who God calls us to be. And so continually, so many of Paul's letters have this motivation. You need to see who you are in Christ, and you need to live in the light of who you are in Christ. You need to let your standing in Christ fuel your present priorities. And so look at some other places he does this. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. It's going to come up on the screen here. Paul says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And Ephesians is really an astounding book because he spends three chapters building up a theology of who God is and specifically who Jesus Christ is. And after three, three chapters, I'd encourage you to read all of Ephesians in one sitting. Your heart is just worshiping at the awesomeness of what God has done through Jesus Christ. And Paul could just close that letter there and we would all be better for it. But he does this. He says these key words. No, you need to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. See, the things you believe about God, the things you know about your standing in Jesus Christ, the things you know about your future with Christ fuel your present priority. It fuels the way you live. Now, look at another spot in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. He says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, as you have received him, as you have been made worthy by him, as you have been covered by him, so walk in him. See how your position with Christ, all of the things that have been bought for you by Christ, fuel your present priorities, how they fuel your faithfulness towards God, how they fuel your walk with God. Paul's priority in light of the future reality is just this. It's faithfulness. God needs to make us worthy of his calling. And this is how Paul would define faithfulness. He says it's this, staying true to your position in Christ. And this is why Paul had a specific love for the church of Thessalonica. Look at chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. Paul shares this love, and, and this is my prayer, is that I, I want to be a person that Paul would boast about. And I want our church to be a church that Paul would boast about. And so look at the kind of church that Paul boasts about. He says this, we always ought, ought to give thanks for, to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. You see, you're living it out. You're living it out. You're growing. Your, your love for the Lord is evident through your actions, through your faithfulness. And in verse 4, he says this. I love this. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God and for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Paul looks at the church of Thessalonica, and he boasts about them. He's going to all his friends at other churches, and he's saying, you got to see this one church. you got to see all the pressures that life's putting on them. you got to see all the persecutions they're facing. you got to see how hard life is for them, but they're keeping their, pre they're, they're keeping their priorities. They're remaining faithful to God. It's really astounding in light of all of the 
pressures they're facing. It's really astounding in light of all of the trials they're in. This has great application for us. When we get caught up in the pressure of our current circumstances, we can lose light of our future reality. Can't we? We can be so nearsighted that we just throw all of our priorities in the garbage. We throw our desire to be faithful in the garbage. We say, I don't care about obedience because our eyes are on today. And we fail to think about the hope that we have in Jesus Christ in the future. One of the ways that we experience this in our life, and I won't make you put up your hands because it would be embarrassing for me and maybe for you as well, but many of us have made resolutions around this time of year to lose a few pounds, right? Many of us feel burdened by the extra weight of a few too many cookies over Christmas, and it's around this time that we say, all right, I need to lose about 20 pounds. And for some of us, those resolutions have lasted about three days, right? Like we made it to that time when our friend invited us to Boston Pizza, and we walked in Boston Pizza, I'm going to lose 20 pounds, I'm going to order something off the salad menu. Then we get to the salad menu, we open it up, and we're like, $24 for a salad? That's not even going to fill me up. And we flip to the burger, and we're like, oh, four bucks for a burger and fries. Well, you know, i got to be wise, too. You know, i got to lose weight, but I also don't want to be unwise. So I'll just order this burger, right? And then decision after decision, the present pressure of the situation makes us throw our priority out the window. And in the same way, life has a way of doing that in, in regard to our faithfulness to God. You might be walking through a trial right now. You might be feeling certain pressure, maybe at work or at home. There might be all these things calling for you to pay attention to that makes you prone to throw your priority out the window. But when you set your hope on the future, when you set your hope on the reality of what Christ, on the reality of Christ's coming, it makes keeping your priorities easy. And so think about this. Faithfulness is made easier when, by thinking about our future. When we meditate on our future state with Christ, when we meditate on the coming of Christ, faithfulness is the obvious option. It just makes sense. The, the pressures and the hardships that we're facing just pale in comparison to how awesome it's going to be and how much you want to live for that future state where you will be with Christ. I love the way C.S. Lewis puts this. See this quote on the screen. He says, If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have lar- largely ceased to think about the other world, they have become so ineffective in this world. See, some of us are sinning continually. We're struggling with sin. We're having no victory over sin because we never set our minds on the next world. We never set our minds on the coming of Jesus Christ. We never set our minds on our future reality. One of the practical ways that we pursue faithfulness is by thinking often about that day. And when we think often about that day, a lot of the things that we are prone to set our priorities on, a lot of the resolutions that we're prone to make become meaningless. They just become meaningless. Like it's not worth pursuing in light of the day that's coming. And throughout this time, we're going to spend some time looking at some of the resolutions of Jonathan Edwards. And I love this one. He says this, I'm resolved, I will act so as I think I shall judge what have been best and most prudent when I come into the future world. 
See, Jonathan Edwards is giving us some really practical help. If you want to pursue faithfulness today, think often of that future world and act in light of that. And when you do that, many of the useless priorities you're prone to set your attention and set your focus and set your energy on become just that, useless to you. Another really practical thing he gives us is this. I frequently hear persons in old age say how they would live if they were to live their lives over again. Resolve that I will live just so as I can think I shall wish I had done, supposing I live to old age. See, when you set your mind on the future, your present priorities change, and they change for the better, and you set yourself to do the things that bring God glory and the things that display his power. You set your mind on faithfulness. Well, how is this faithfulness carried out? Paul wants to show us that too, and so look at the end of verse 11. Paul continues in his prayer, and he's praying this, that God may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. This faithfulness is carried out in the resolutions for good and the accomplishment of of works. See, God desires his church to be faithful in the way that they live for him and the things that they do for him. Faithfulness is carried out in action and in tasks. And I want you to notice two specific things about this. First, I want you to notice God's work. Notice God's work in this verse. Look at that word, fulfill. Paul loves to use this word, fulfill. And in this word is this meaning. It means something that's begun, God's going to carry out to completion. And so the resolutions in you, you need to hear this. It is God's power that's going to carry that out to completion. The work you need to do, the faithfulness you need to show God will only happen so much as God is fulfilling it in your life. He says at the end of verse 11 that these things are done by his power. It's only accomplished by the power of God. So we see God's work, but I want you to notice another thing. Look at our effort. Look at the effort that's involved as we pursue faithfulness. You see, Paul doesn't just leave it on God. He also says that we need to have every resolve for good and every work of faith. It's required of us to put in an effort. It's required of us to make resolutions for good works. It's required of us to do the things and do the works that our faith compel us to do. God requires your effort. But your effort fails without his power. Do you see both these things working hand in hand? God's work and your work. One of the best ways that that I can think about this is by thinking about a car. When you got into your car this morning and you drove, then you got in and you turned the key. And part of the way that that car worked was the engine turned on and you put your foot to the gas and the car moved. Right? It was partly the car's power. But if you got in that car, and this illustration falls down with some of these newer cars, so let's just think about my really old Toyota that's a beater, okay? If you get in this car, you turn it on, and you just sit there. The engine's revving, but it's not moving. See, in order for you to drive your car, it requires the car's power, and it requires your driving ability. It needs both. And my fear is that as we look back on 2016, as we think about some of the ways that, some, maybe some of the sins we struggle with and haven't obtained victory over, and some of the priorities we, need to, we know we need to make in our life, we failed because we've either failed to tap into God's power or we failed to put in the work that was required of us. And we fail to live faithfully because we do that. 
And so maybe on your mind right now is a priority you know you need to do, a work of faithfulness you know you need to pursue, a sin you know you need to cast off, a good work you know you need to accomplish. And one of the helpful ways that we can diagnose this is by asking, us to, asking ourselves two questions about why we fail. The first question is this, did I fail to tap into God's power? Did I fail to tap into God's power? I hope you know enough about God's word to know that his power is present for you. That God wants to work in you. That he wants to fulfill these things in you. That he wants to work in you by his power. And so the problem then can be, did you fail to tap into it? Did you try to do it all by your effort? If I get into my car and I don't turn it on, I can slide it into neutral and I can push all I want. But if I did that this morning, I still wouldn't be here. I'd be about 30 seconds away from my house, pushing my car, trying. And some of you are living the Christian life like that. You're pushing the car. You're trying as hard as you can. You're sweating. You're bleeding for Christ, but you're not going anywhere because there's no power behind it. You haven't tapped into the power that God provides you for faithfulness. Maybe you look back on your life and maybe this last year has just been completely prayerless. Completely prayerless. Isn't that what we said prayer is? It's, It's us saying, God, I need you to do this. You realize what that reveals if you're prayerless? It reveals that you don't think you need God's help. You don't think you need God's power in the situation. You don't think you need God to help you get through the day. You think you can do it on your own. Maybe you didn't tap into God's power, but maybe the reverse is true. Maybe you you put in all the effort. You, You put in all the effort, but you didn't trust in God's power. You, turn on the, you didn't turn on the car, you sat in it, you turned it on, sorry, and then you just sat in it, and you didn't put on the effort. You didn't wake up early in order to read God's word, you didn't text that person in order to have a meeting with them, you failed to put in the required effort. You failed to do the things you know you need to do in order to pursue faithfulness. See, our faithfulness is carried out by God's work and our effort. One of the best ways that I've heard this described is by a man named Kevin DeYoung, and he says this. He describes it like this. It's spirit-empowered, gospel-driven, faith-fueled effort. Let me say that again. The kind of effort that's required of us, the kind of faithfulness that's required of us that Paul's speaking about here is spirit-empowered, gospel-driven, faith-fueled effort. It requires both the Spirit's empowering and our effort. And so as we look back and we see maybe the ways that we failed, we apply, we need God's power and we need our effort. The first priority we see in the text is the resolve to display his power through our faithfulness. Second priority we have when we set our minds on our future reality is this. We become resolved to display his preeminence through our godliness. And so when you see your future reality in Christ, you say this, I'm resolved. I'm going to display his preeminence through my godliness. Look at verse 12, where Paul shows us the purpose of displaying his power. He says this, So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified. See, the reason why God wants to work in you this year, the reason reason why God wants to accomplish every resolve for good and every work of faith in your life is so that his name may be glorified. So as he brings you on this journey of life, 
as he brings you towards your future reality, as he brings you to heaven, it is all by his glory. I love to think about the day when all of us will be in heaven and many of you will look at me maybe or maybe someone else you know in your life and you'll say, how did you make it here? Right? I know a lot of really crazy, you know, things about you and I'm just shocked that you're even here right now. And maybe you'll say that to me, you know, how'd you make it here? And I'll be able to look to you and I'll say, because God wanted to glorify his name through me. And then maybe you'll, you know, go to the cafeteria and sit down for some heavenly lunch and you sit beside a murderer. And he's telling you all the things that he did in his life. And you say, okay, of all the people I expected to be here, like I understand Paul's here, I understand Peter's here, but you, how did you get here? And he'll turn to you and he'll say, because God chose to glorify his name through me. See, the reason why God wants to accomplish this, these things, the reason why God, God wants your faithfulness and your godliness is to display his glory through your life. And so as we continue to read, Paul's going to show us how this glory affects our present priorities. How the glory that God receives from displaying his power in us affects our present priorities. And it means this, we commit to godliness in three ways. And the first way we commit to godliness is this, we commit to his glory. We commit to his glory. Notice that Paul goes on and he says this, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. That he may be glorified in you. See, God wants to show us this morning that our actions really do bring God glory. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that the way you live, that the actions you do, that the things you accomplish either bring God glory or they don't? You see, sometimes we can get caught up in this comparison game where we're like, okay, yeah, I understand how a senior pastor can glorify God. Or I understand how a small group leader can glorify God. But I'm just like, you know, I, I'm insignificant. You know, I don't work at the church. I have a job that is in the world and it has nothing to do with bringing God glory. Maybe we get caught up in thinking that our actions really don't matter. Like they really either don't bring God glory or they do bring God glory. It doesn't matter what you do. But God wants to remind us in every little thing, you have the opportunity to bring him glory. This is why Paul says in another one of his letters, he says this in 1 Corinthians 10. 31, whether you eat or you drink, do all to the glory of God. You see, even in the most insignificant things, God wants you to bring glory to him in every action. And Jesus says this to his followers. Look at what's coming up on the screen. Jesus says to his followers, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. God desires that we be, as a church, a people who are pursuing good works. Why? So that people look at us and say, hey, man, you're really a hard worker at work. So that people say, hey, you're really a great father. So that people say, hey, you're really a good mother. You really take care of the house well. No, it's for this, so that they can see you and glory in God. Man, this person has a different motivation. They don't care about the money. They don't care about the promotion. They don't care about the success. They care about God's glory. They're working for something different. They're working for something that brings them more joy. God desires that you work in every way for his glory. And so the question is this. How will your work bring God glory this year? How will you bring glory to God this year? 
One of the helpful ways to think about this is through what we call the three W's of a mature disciple. We believe that if you're a mature disciple, you bring great glory to God. And we believe what a mature disciple does is worships God, worships Christ, walks with Christ, and works for Christ. And so, really practically, what you can do is think about a way in each of these areas that you can glorify God more this year. In your worship of Christ, how can you glorify God more this year? Maybe you need to read a book that's going to just cause your heart to worship and renew your mind as you read and you think about how great Jesus Christ is. Maybe your attendance on Sunday morning service and your attendance at congregational worship or prayer and praise is, is really low. Maybe you need to commit. I'm going to be there. I want to renew my worship. I want to glorify God in the way that I worship Christ. This one's going to be a low blow, but maybe you need to make it to church on time. Just feel the weight of that one. What about your work? What about your walk with Christ? What are the ways that you need to walk with Christ more faithfully? Maybe it's your personal devotions. Maybe you said you'd read through the Bible in a year, and that just failed to happen. Maybe it's the way you plug in a community. You know, maybe you're a part of a small group, and you're there, but you're not really there, right? You're in the small group. You go to the small group, but you kind of put this mask over when you go, and you say, I'm I'm not going to be accountable to everything. I'm only going to tell them things that I want to tell them. And you're not leaning into God's power that he presents to you through your small group. Maybe you need to decide, no, in my walk with Christ, I'm going to glorify him. What about your work for Christ? What are ways that you can bring more glory to Christ through your work for him? Maybe it's serving in the church in a different way or in another way. Maybe it's at your work. You need to take on a project that doesn't really need to be yours, but it needs to get done. Maybe you need to help others around you. Maybe it's in your family. You need to start serving your family more. You need to take your mind off work or take your mind off whatever's taking you off your family and serve them more. Work for Christ. Glorify him. We're committed to his glory and we see our future reality. Another thing we're committed to is our growth. We're committed to our growth. This is an astounding part of this passage. And so see in verse 12 that Paul says, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. You see, this is a reciprocal glory. Not only does God get the glory, but you're glorified in him as you pursue him in godliness. You're glorified in him. Now, what does this mean? This is kind of, it can be confusing an unknown language to us, what does it mean to be glorified in him? Well, it's twofold. First, it means this, that there is coming a day where God will come in an instant. We just sang about it. He's going to come in an instant, and he's going to call you to glory. Immediately, just like that, you're taken from this present world and brought into the future world, and you look back and you see death, but you see that it's defeated, and you say, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? You look back and you see sin. You see all the ways that sin plagued you. You see all the ways that sin hindered your relationship with God. And you look back at sin and you say, be gone. You're done with. Jesus has won victory over you. He's brought me to glory. You look back and you see all the sufferings in this world, all the afflictions you faced, and you remember that there's going to be no more tears, no more mourning. Is your heart not worshiping Jesus Christ right now? Do not all of the priorities you've set yourself on seem to fade in light of our future reality? Jesus is coming. He's coming to call us. As we think about going to glory with Jesus, this really changes our present priority, doesn't it? It really changes it. Look at what Jonathan Edwards resolved to do. 
as he thought about this frequently, he said, resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expected it would be not above an hour before I should hear the last trump. Do you know that? Do you know that within an hour, Jesus could come? He could come right now. That would be an amazing end to the sermon. He could come. And we need to live. One of the ways that we practically fuel our present priorities is by thinking, what if he comes in this next hour? Do I really want to be caught doing the thing I'm doing? Do I really want to be caught pursuing the thing I'm pursuing? How does this bring glory to God? I want to be found when Jesus returns, living for his glory, doing what screams, God is so great. I love living for him. I want to be found doing that. And so I'm going to be living every moment as though in an hour I'm going to say to Jesus, hey, thanks for coming, Jesus. I was just glorifying your name. I was just glorifying your name in my, with my family. I was just glorifying your name with my church. I was just glorifying your name at my work. I'm living to glorify your name. The second thing, though, this, this does mean that one day he's going to come and call us to glory in an instant, but it also means that in this moment, even now, God is working to bring you to glory. Do you know that? God's working to bring you to glory. And so Paul puts it like this in another letter in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. He says this, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. See, God is bringing us here. Even right now, I was meditating on this this morning, even right now, the whole point of this service, we pray it all the time and we do everything so that you and I can see the glory of the Lord. Because really, we don't have to do anything if we just stick our faces in front of the glory of the Lord. If we do that, Paul's promising here, we're going to be transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. As we sit in front of God's glory, as we see his glory, as he brings us to glory, we're transformed. He's transforming us. He's growing us. And so we commit to this growth. I love my future reality. I'm looking at the coming of Christ. I'm looking forward to it. And because of it, I'm committing to the growth that God wants me to have. Many of you will remember, and for some of you, this will seem new to you, and so if it seems new to you, just pretend that I said this and, and this thought originated with me, and if it doesn't seem new to you, then Ian said it, okay? <laughs> last, uh, last year about this time, Ian throwing up the fruit of the Spirit on the screen and saying, pick one and pursue it. Many of you remember picking one, and, and maybe a few months down the road, you forgot about it, or maybe it was on your mind the whole year, and, and you just felt like, you didn't fulfill it, or maybe you did fulfill it. But now's a really, time for you, a really good time for you to commit to growth, to pick a fruit of the Spirit, and to say, I'm going to commit to this. I want to grow in this area of my life. And I would encourage you, as you pick a fruit of the Spirit that you need to grow in, don't just say, uh, I'm going to grow in self-control, and then walk out the door. Get really specific about how that looks in your life. What are the areas that you struggle with self-control in? Maybe you sit in front of a batch of your wife's cookies and you can't stop yourself from spending the whole afternoon eating the whole entire thing. I really felt like I was alone in that one. <laughs> what is the area of self-control that you struggle to accomplish? And so think, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to keep myself from that. Make specific resolutions. In order for self-control to be a reality in my life, I need to do this. And get after it. Commit to your growth. We commit to his glory. 
We commit to our growth. And how does this happen? It happens because we're committed by his grace. We're committed by his grace. Look at the end of verse 12. Paul says this. He, he overshadows the whole entire passage and says that this is all according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you recognize this? The only way that you will have the right priority, the only way that your priorities will be set right for the Lord is by his grace. It's all by his grace, isn't it? Isn't it by his grace that he sent Jesus Christ to die for us? It's by his grace. You didn't deserve that. And some of you, as we think about even grace, you've never experienced that. You've never experienced that. You, you, you understand that you're unworthy before God. You understand that faithfulness hasn't been a priority for you to God. You've been living in this world and pursuing the things of this world. You understand that godliness has never been your priority. And because you're not saved, because you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have no future hope. And you sit in here and you're sitting beside someone who's rejoicing in their future hope, rejoicing in the fact that because of Christ, they're worthy before God, that because of Christ, they have a future reality in heaven. And as you sit, they're rejoicing, but you're filled with fear. You're filled with fear because you know your future reality is without God. You know your future reality is away from the presence of God. And you've never experienced the grace that God gives us in the cross. And I need to tell you right now that you can taste it in this moment. You can taste it in this moment if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. If you say, I'm a sinner, I need, I need help. I can't do this on my own. I have no righteousness of my own. I need the Lord Jesus Christ's righteousness. I'm not worthy of it, and so how do I get it? And in a moment, you can look to the cross and see how you get it from the finished work of Jesus Christ for you, from the words that Christ yelled from the cross. It is finished. It is done my grace is poured out for these people. They can now experience a relationship with me. Do you know you can do that in your seat right now? You can experience God's grace. We experience God's grace in the cross, but as we look forward to the future, we're also looking forward to a day where we will experience God's grace for eternity. We'll experience God's grace for eternity. And so, as we love what God has done for us in the cross, and we long for what God will do in for us in eternity, we live in the light of what God is doing in us now. We live in the light of the grace that can be won for us now. Let me ask you this as we close. Are you hungry for grace? Like, let me change that. Are you addicted to grace? See, those who have experienced God's grace in salvation and those who long for God's grace in their glorification live in the grace of their sanctification. Let me bring that down to the bottom shelf. Those who love what God has done for them on the cross and those for lo who long for what God is doing for them in the future live in the growth that God has for them now. They do that. And so are you hungry for it? Or are you hungry for other things that are robbing your attention? Let me ask you this. Do you believe that grace is sufficient for you? Do you believe that grace is sufficient? Maybe you see these priorities. Faithfulness? Yeah, I've tried that before. God's, his grace is just not sufficient. Godliness? I've tried that before too, but it's too hard. His grace isn't sufficient for me. I see other people getting it, but it hasn't worked for me. And you need to see what you're doing in that moment is doubting the sufficiency of his grace. 
you're doubting the sufficiency of his grace. It's sufficient for you. God will bring you through growth to glory. He's sufficient to do it for you. Are you hungry for grace? Do you believe grace is sufficient? Will you pursue it today? This is a really sobering quote I want to share with you by J.C. Ryle. He says this, Satan does not care how spiritual your intentions or how holy your resolutions if only they are determined to be done tomorrow. See, this sermon can be really useless if we walk out of here saying, I'm going to do this tomorrow. This has got to be a priority. We set right now. We set right now. And so as we sing this song, Christ alone, cornerstone, would you make that your declaration? Would you meditate on all the ways that you've fallen short of that in history and rejoice in the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ and resolve to make this year a year where Christ alone is your cornerstone? He alone is the reason that you do everything. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you, God, amazed at your grace, amazed at all that Jesus Christ has done for us. God, we come before you now amazed at the grace that is coming to us when Christ returns. Lord, we just revel in that. We worship in that. We're just shocked at how gracious you are to unworthy sinners. And Lord, I pray that it would be our resolve now more than ever to get after the proper priorities in our life to be hungry to do what glorifies you to be hungry to see your power surging through us working through us in a way that the world looks at us and they see a person who is just completely unworthy bringing glory to your name see an unworthy instrument redeemed for your purpose God, accomplish this in, in this church. And may this year be a year that is about you, God, that's about being faithful to you, that's about being godly for you, that it's about living in your power and living for your glory. God, make this year all about you. Would you light this church aflame with a passion to glorify your name with our lives, even though it'll be hard, even though it requires effort. Lord, help us to live in your power. It is so available to us. And so we proclaim now as we worship you, Christ alone, cornerstone. He is all that we have and he is all that we need. Amen.